The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. This morning is from Galatians 5, starting in verse 25. If you're looking in the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 916 you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, starting in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore in him a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one, another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are rapidly moving towards the end of our time studying the book of Galatians. Um, And as we've seen now for at least last week and even, I would argue, the week before, Paul has been establishing the realities of what it looks like for us uh, to walk in the Holy Spirit in such a way where we are able to obey the commands of King Jesus specifically the one concentrated command that we saw two weeks ago where Jesus, speaking to us, calls us, commanded us to serve one another through love. We saw that uh, what we're going to need in in order to be able to uh, walk in obedience to that command is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now what Paul is going to do is round the corner and just get crazy crazy practical. He's going to give us the concrete particulars of like just what does this look like. And so this morning what I'm doing is calling this sermon Life in the Spirit. Last week we looked at the power of the Spirit as necessary for us to be able to mature and grow and walk in ways that are in obedience to our King. But now Paul's going to do is say, hey, this whole power of the Holy Spirit thing, like what just does that look like when we live by the Spirit everyday life. What does life in the Spirit look like? And that's exactly what these verses are going to cover for us today. Verses 25 at the end of chapter 5 all the way into verse 5 of chapter 6. It's just straight up life in the Spirit. And so the main idea that Paul's going to lay on us this morning is this, okay? Life in the Spirit is community life. It's sort of odd to think about this, and we're going to touch on this here in a little bit, that life in the Spirit is actually community life. He's going to define Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered living as being in community. And he's going to tease out what he means by life in the Spirit is community life by showing us that we keep in step with the Spirit, not by self-conceit, not operating on the assumption that life is all about me, that my spouse, wife, husband, children, they exist to orbit me as their center of gravity. That's self-conceit. But actually it looks like, keeping in the step with the Spirit, it looks like gentle restoration. 
knowing somebody enough to know when they're caught in a sin, he tells us in verse 1, so that we can gently restore them, bearing their burdens when life becomes weighty in those mattering things in mattering areas of life. And so what we're going to do right now is just pray. I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower the time of his preaching so that he would lead us and guide us even this morning so we can understand truly what life in the Spirit looks like according to the Word of God, okay? So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your Word. I'm thankful that you do not leave us to our own devices. I'm thankful that you, Holy Spirit, as you were carrying the Apostle Paul along in his writing of this letter to the churches in Galatia, to these brothers and sisters in Christ, that not only do we have our brother, the Apostle Paul, showing us what Christ-bought freedom looks like, what justification by grace through faith in Christ looks like, but we even have you loving us to the point of just sort of grabbing us by the hand and leading us in the concrete particulars of just what life in the Spirit looks like on an everyday, day-in, day-out sort of way. Thank you for loving us in this way. Thank you, Father, for caring to show us what this looks like. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you now open our eyes to see Christ this morning. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you now would open our minds to understand the scriptures before us this morning. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would do your great work of forming us, conforming us to the image of our Savior by leading us beyond the borders of just being hearers of the word only. But Father, would you move in such a way this morning to where we could say we have most definitely been hearers of the word of God this morning but by the power of the Spirit in me, I'm going to walk out these doors and walk by the Spirit in such a way to where my life will reflect that I am a doer of the Word as well as a hearer. Lord God, for your great name and the glory and the fame of your Son, Jesus Christ, would you do this among us this morning? It's in your name I pray. Amen. So think about this. These last couple of uh, verses in chapter 5, even rolling into chapter 6, we said last week we're just chock full of the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, verse 16. Be led by the Spirit, verse 18. Bear the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. Live by the Spirit, verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit, the end of verse 25. If you remember last Sunday as we gathered together, we studied these very words, these very ideas about the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul was basically encouraging us to live out our Christ-bought freedom by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Ever since we've rounded in to Galatians chapter 5, Paul has called us to see this simple truth that Christ Jesus has set us free to be free. But as those who've been called to freedom, we must see that our freedom is not licensed to go and do whatever we want to do. The, the specific phrase that Paul used is this, that our, to see that our freedom is not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh. Our Christ-bought freedom does not free us up to go and do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it, but it has actually freed us to now serve one another through love. And so Paul has been teasing out this whole idea of what does it actually look like to serve others, to be others-oriented as a result of Christ serving us through his death and his resurrection on the cross. See, a few minutes ago, um, we just said this, that Last week, we saw that our ability to obey the command to serve one another through love, it does not rest in our power. That was a large portion of what we concentrated on last week. We stand there and go, man, King Jesus, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. My aim is to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. King Jesus has the right to tell me to look out towards others he has the right to say to me, you, John, in your Christ-bought freedom that I've applied to your account is to be used to serve others, serve others through love, not begrudgingly. King Jesus has that right to do that, but all of us feel that tension in our soul where there's just simply times we don't want to serve others. Or there's times where we're not willing to not serve others, so we serve others but we don't do it through love. We feel that tension. And so what we said was when King Jesus calls us to obey this command, to serve one another through love, we said the, the necessary power to be able to walk in obedience to that command is to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to be led by the Holy Spirit so that we walk by the Holy Spirit, so that as we walk by the Holy Spirit, we're being led by the Holy Spirit, as we're being led by the Holy Spirit, we're walking by the Holy Spirit, and then what happens is we begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit, the main fruit being love, so that we can now serve one another through love. Like that was the whole gist of last week. We said that we will conquer the desires of the flesh and bear the fruit of love as we keep in step with the Holy Spirit who leads his people. This, says Paul, is what life in the Spirit is all about. But notice that as we round into verse 25 and begin to look at these first verses of chapter 6, Paul is continuing this whole idea of, of the Spirit and the way we're to uh, do life in the Spirit. But notice that he's just not content to merely give us an understanding of the Spirit's power. I mean, he could have just done that, right? Last week said, hey guys, uh, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and we would need to hear that, and we could receive that and go. But what Paul's going to do is just nudge it just one step further and say, now what I'm going to do is take that reality of the necessary power of the Spirit we need, I'm going to show you what it just concretely, practically looks like to walk and live life in the Spirit. And I'm so thankful that Paul does this. 
that he actually gets down to those concrete particulars of how we actually demonstrate spirit-led love for one another. You see, whenever you begin to talk about what it means to live by the Spirit, people respond in all sorts of different ways. Right? If you begin to just talk about what does power in the Spirit look like, what does Spirit-empowered living look like, what does Spirit-led living look like, if we were just to take a quick survey, I think we'd have all sorts of answers all over the place. Right? Some of us are more maybe devotional types. What we might say is that spirit-led living, it just looks like maybe better quiet times. For some of us, maybe it looks like, well, you know what? Spirit-led living, it's going to be um, evidenced in more like charismatic kind of experiences. For some of us who are the miracle seekers among us, we just might claim that, no, no, to live by the Spirit, spirit-led, empowered, walking... It looks like this. It looks like power encounters, signs, wonders, miraculous things that are, that are taking place. Now, while the Spirit certainly works in these ways, because His aim is to magnify Christ, I would argue you can look at Scripture and see the Spirit doing these sorts of things. It's just interesting to note that that's not where Paul goes. Do you notice that? Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Now, the evidence of this will be mind-boggling, miraculous wonders and works among the people of God. Figure it out, get on with life. He doesn't do that. He actually says the proof that Spirit-led living and loving is working itself out into the hearts and the minds of people is this. You do community with one another. You do community with one another. He talks about how Christ-bought recipients of grace operate toward one another when the Spirit is leading. This is what it looks like to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. It looks like Community life for life in the Spirit involves healthy relationships within the body of Christ. This is what Paul is just simply saying right now. He's saying this, life in the Spirit, community life, you and I walk in flesh-conquering, Spirit-led power as we live in community among believers. And when that community among believers is not marked by self-love, conceit, And when that community is marked by gentle restoration of those who are caught in sin, and when it looks like bearing the burdens of brothers and sisters around us who have a heavy load on them that they can't bear by themselves, when you can look around and see community life, in that sense, Paul is like, you are looking at one of the most spirit-filled churches in the world. This is what spirit-led living looks like. You see, this is life in the Spirit, says Paul. And so what he does now is he moves into verse 26 through the end of verse 5. He's going to begin to unpack this Spirit-led life by first showing us what Spirit-led living, life in the Spirit, is not. And he says this, life in the Spirit is not self-conceit. Life in the Spirit is not Self-conceit. This is just verses 25 and 26. So just look at those two verses in your copy of Scripture here. 
Look at what, what Paul begins writing there in verse 25. Listen, if we live by the Spirit, so there we go, that's life in the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here it is. Let us not become conceited, because when you're conceited, you're going to provoke one another, and you're going to envy one another. Now, the idea behind this word conceit is someone who has a high opinion of themselves. That's what it means to be conceited. You're a pride-filled self-boaster. You think you're superior. You think everyone's inferior. The attitude of your heart, the thinking of your mind, the words that flow out of your heart towards others is this. These people exist to serve me. I am better than you. You're an idiot. I'm smart. You're dumb. I'm intelligent, you're low, I'm high, and they actually believe this to the point where it steers and motivates their interactions towards others. Their whole heart is driven by a belittling action of others. So they're pride-filled. And because they're filled with pride, Pride being they think themselves better than others, it easily leads them to begin to boast about others. Have you ever been around a self-boaster? They are some of the most obnoxious people in the world because it's just me. Me, me. Me, 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 me. Did you see me doing me when I went to me and talked about me and I and me and me and I and I and me? And you're just like, like this person just can't get off of themselves. An old school word to describe this idea of conceit actually comes from the original word behind this word for conceit, and it's this word, vainglorious. Someone is full of vainglory. Do you see the two words there? In glory, what they're doing is they're seeking the pursuit of self-glory. They want everyone to sing not how great thou art, but to sing how great I art. That's their operation. That's their, that's their, that's their mode of operation. Because in vanity, they have a self-inflated importance, right? I was just pumping up. The springtime comes around, and uh, the bikes have been in the garage all winter long. The tires are flat, so what do you do? You get out, like, you know, the the, the old-school little $1 bike pump that I got, right? So what are you doing? You you take the pump down, right, that little thing, you know, then you take the hose, you stick it into the little nozzle, and you start pumping it up. Makes sense. The vainglory, self-conceited person, what they do is they take the pump of glory and what they do is they plug it into their head and they start going like this. They get a big fat head because they're full of themselves. They have a self-inflated importance. Okay, you get it, what it means to be conceited. But self-conceit, says Paul, is now is not how we are to keep in step with the spirit. The self-conceited person is actually a flesh worker, to use the language from last week. They're working the works of the flesh. Because when we're conceited, we tend to provoke one another, envy one another. Hello, list of the works of the flesh. One of them was envy. So if you go around self-inflated, full of yourselves, what you're going to do is love yourself, serve yourself. You will not serve others. You will not love others in that way. And so really, if you think about this, it just makes a lot of sense. Because whether we've seen this whole conceited, self-conceit idea play out in our own lives at times, or in the lives of others... Conceit, giving away to provoking of others, or self-conceit, giving way to envying others. I think we've all in some way, shape, or form have seen this play out in the world around us. You see, whenever we are motivated by a false assurance 
of our superiority, we will look for ways to prove our conceit by provoking others. We'll begin to irritate and aggravate others with the hope that they'll try to dispute our claim, only giving us the chance to prove what we believe to be true about ourselves. Have you seen that before? Someone who's full of themselves will begin to operate in a way where they're provoking others, irritating others, aggravating others, so that they will hopefully engage in battle with them. I don't like the way he's being self-conceited and pride-filled. So you step into that battle, but the self-conceited person, that's what they want because they believe themselves to be better, and they know that if this person steps in, there's a decent chance I'm going to even be able to belittle them even more and just prove how wide the the, the presupposed gap is between me and them. So the self-conceited person says, Hey, brother, I'm going to be a provoker So that I can try to make sure you see and everyone else sees the gap, the distance between how great I am and how little you are. Okay? But not only that, Paul says, from conceit also comes envy. Envy. Envy, which can do one of two things. Envy will either drive us to anger at the success of someone else... Or envy will cause us to rejoice at the failure of others. And I'm sure you've seen this before, right? In the movies, maybe in your own life or just somewhere at work, right? When conceit drives me to envy, what I'll begin to do is say to myself, John, you really are something. But then in my something, I look up and I go, but that person has, has that thing that I want. And I don't like the fact that they have it because I believe myself to be better than them and I don't think they're worthy of that thing. And so in my conceit drives me in envy to go, I am now angry at you because you have something that I don't have. And I don't like that fact because now we're, you're starting to maybe creep up and like, you maybe aren't as bad as I, I thought you were. And so my self-love now makes me become angry and envious at something I might have. Or the other way is envy will cause us to rejoice at the failure of others. Have you ever seen that? If I think I'm all that and I think you're low and I want others to see the distance between how high I am and how low you are, when you just biff it, face plant it in the walk of life, I'm going to be over there secretly doing this on the inside of my heart because in my own mind I've somehow deceived myself into thinking, aha, this thing is really going to prove how great I am and how little they are. So you're inwardly loving the failure of others. Because you don't want to see them succeed. You see, envy, just in a nutshell, it's just that work of the flesh. And provoking others flows directly from those fleshly desires that we looked at last week. Strife, rivalries, and divisions. But, says Paul, as we keep in step with the Spirit, he produces the fruit of love and empowers us to have the mind of Christ that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That word conceit is used twice in the New Testament. Here, in Philippians 2.3 that I'm, I'm quoting to you right now. 
So the way we fight conceit is by actually looking to Christ, the Spirit of the living God empowering us to have the mind of Christ. What defines, describes the mind of Christ? This, Christ did nothing from selfish ambition. Christ did nothing from conceit. But in humility, Christ counted others more significant than ourselves. And if you know that section in Philippians 2, where does Paul go? He goes to the proof of this as the cross. So if life in the spirit does not look like self-conceit, then the question becomes, well, so what does it look like? Paul says it looks like at least two things. The first being this, life in the spirit looks like gentle restoration. Life in the spirit looks like gentle restoration. So don't be a self-conceited, vainglorious fool. But do walk in such a way where the Spirit is now empowering you, motivating you, driving you, leading you to walk with gentle restoration towards others. Verse 1, Paul continues. He says, brothers, he's calling everyone's attention, brothers. That is, anyone who's been justified by faith in Christ. The word brothers there includes this idea of brothers and sisters in Christ. He says to them, listen, justified saints... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, we're going to unpack that here in a minute, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's verse 1. So Paul begins by calling the family of God to see that spirit-led loving looks like gentle restoration for anyone caught in any transgression. The idea behind this phrase of being caught in any transgression is that someone being caught in sin by surprise. Uh, That idea of transgression is this, like someone is running the race of life, let's say. They're running the Christian race. They're running the laps. they're They're doing the distance, man. And then someone like on the sideline is just watching old boy go running by. And he's like, I'm going to take, take this clown out. So there you are just running, man. You're focused. you got your eyes on Christ. You're going. And all of a sudden, like some on the sideline, someone's like, da, 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 da. And just like spears you. Like it just completely takes you off track. That's the idea of what's being wrapped up in here and caught in any transgression. You're running in a line. And somehow you're now out of step with that line. You're caught. And it's now pushed you sort of like... Off, off track there a little bit. So that's the idea behind this phrase, someone being caught in sin by surprise. Now, it's not that they happily choose to sin and then unfortunately were caught in the act. That's different, right? Like if you're out there going, I'm just going to sin, I'm going to choose to sin, I love to sin, I'm not repentant over sin, and oh man, someone checked the history on my on my phone, and they saw some of the searches I was looking at, and I got caught. Surprise! That's not what what Paul is talking about. He's talking about those that sinned in an unplanned or unexpected way. Now, the Bible will say that even though it might have been unplanned, unexpected, maybe that temptation, that desire of the flesh, rose up in a moment, and for that moment in time, we just simply believed Jesus was not better, and, we, and we, we bit hook, line, and sinker into that desire of the flesh, and then boom, there we are, producing fruit from the works of the flesh, 
But the reality is it's not like we were trying to go that route. It was just this unplanned, unexpected stumbling, like face planting in this race of life. The Bible says clearly that even if you find yourself in that place, you are guilty of that transgression. You do bear full responsibility for that sin. But the all-too-familiar reality for God's people is that the enemy of our soul delights to set traps, sin traps. And as it is, sometimes brothers and sisters, as they're sprinting the race of faith towards the object of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, these brothers and sisters fall into these traps. Hence, the need for restoration. So when this happens, says Paul, we need fellow recipients of grace, those who are spiritual, he says, to lovingly pry open those traps, restore, and set those people free. Now, it's important to understand what Paul means by those who are spiritual, right? That's the qualification. If anyone's caught in any transgression, it's you who are spiritual should be the ones who go to seek the restoring, the restoration of these people. So we've got to ask the question, like, what does Paul mean by by spiritual. Well, here's what he's not referring to. Don't take the modern sort of secular idea of spiritual and transplant it back into to Galatians chapter 6. Like that sort of Oprah Winfrey, vague, feel-goody, universal, yeah, man, we're all good. And I'm, you know, I'm not a real big follower of religion, but I'm, I'm sort of spiritual. Has anyone ever, I hear that quite a lot. Like, no, 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 I'm not about that Jesus thing, but I'm spiritual. You're like, okay, like, I don't know, what does that mean? What they mean by that is, like, I'm not nothing, but I'm, I'm everything, like, right? It's just all over the place. I'm spiritual. Paul is not, that's not what Paul is driving at. According to the word of God, the person who is spiritual is the person who's received the Holy Spirit. The spiritual person is the one who is being led by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit. The spiritual person is the one who has received the Spirit when they heard and believed the message of the gospel, Galatians chapter 3. And Paul is now looking at the Galatians and saying, I'm talking to all y'all. You're the spiritual ones. You've received the Holy Spirit. You guys enjoy Abraham's blessing, for you have received the promise of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, verse 14. God has given you his Spirit because you are his sons and daughters, Chapter 4, verse 6. You now live by the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 25. Therefore, as those who are walking by the Spirit, 516, are led by the Spirit, 518, and are keeping in step with the Spirit, 525, you are to bear the fruit of the Spirit, 522 and 23, and now restore this believer in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, and Paul is just saying this is true for you Galatians, for any one of us here this morning who are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, we find ourselves in the exact same place. It's just as true for me and you today. You see, the self-conceited man, the self-conceited woman who walks in the works of the flesh will delight to provoke and discourage that person who was caught in the trap of sin. So do you see how this works out? The self-conceited person might be among us here this morning. A brother or a sister is caught up in some transgression, but because I don't want to be seen as lower than others when someone trips and stumbles, face plants in the sprint of faith towards Christ, what I'm going to do is secretly on the inside, yes, 
I'm so glad they stumbled because now it only proves that they're not as good as they thought they were. And it only proves that I'm better than them because after all, I didn't fall into the same sin that they did. Because this person, this self-conceited man or woman, has that false sense of superiority, they'll want to make their fellow believer feel stupid for falling into sin. Listen, if you were just better, you wouldn't have done that. Provocation. (laughs) Either that or that self-conceited heart of envy will find joy in the sin of another since their sin makes me look better by comparison, which is that what I want, right? So, like, if people know that, man, I'm picking on you, okay, Brady, Brady Reader. So, if me and Brady Reader, we're, we're running the race of faith here, right, we're, we're, we're together, we're, we're meeting, disciple, and that kind of thing, and then he just, I mean, boom, like, epic face plant, caught in sin, transgression. If I'm operating on a heart of self-conceit, what I'm going to do is, if it's conceit giving way to envy, secretly on the inside, I'm going to be fist pumping because what I'm, what I'm excited about is this is that I want people to see that I'm better than Brady. And I don't want to actually go out and say that to others, that I'm better than Brady, but now the opportunity has happily come along to where it's like, man, that dude did an epic face plant, and here I am not doing that. Don't you guys see the difference between how much better I am than Brady? That's what self-conceit will do when we find a brother and sister who's tripped and stumbled and and fallen on their face in sin. But, says Paul, but, 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 it's the spirit-led recipient of grace who delights to restore their fellow believer in gentleness because they know full well they too might be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The grace of recipient, this spirit-led recipient of grace, remembers all too well their own propensity to be caught in the snare of sin and fall into temptation. And the recognition that they might be one flesh-driven decision away from being on the receiving end of restoration leads them to walk in gentle restoration towards others. It's that mutual give and take, man, like I'm walking this race and I look over and I see old Brady, man, he just face planted. So what I can either do is with conceit, operate with provocation and envy, or Paul says, no, when the spirit is leading, what you're going to do is have a desire to see that brother caught in transgression, caught in sin, restored, because like you're, like you're doing this, you're running the race and your leg is up and you see him stumble, you're like this far away from just taking another two steps and pff, wiping out yourself. Because the flesh comes around and just grabs you because you weren't standing on guard and you. You see, one of the best questions we can ask ourselves is the question Am I concerned when I see a brother or sister in Christ wobble and wander in their pursuit of Jesus? Right? If we're called to restore in gentleness anyone caught in any transgression, What Paul is saying is that spirit-led living means that we are to have a care for those with whom we do life. Right? Life in the spirit is community life, Christian community life. And so the question to maybe ask yourself to begin to pull back the layers of your heart is this. When a brother, when a sister in Christ wobbles, wanders, face plants, gets caught in transgression, am I concerned or am I over here doing this? 
boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. Sometimes people just make stupid decisions. One brother put it this way. It seems that some in the church have no concern over the fact that a brother or sister is wandering away from the truth. While others take a, well, it's not my business approach when a brother is straying. I've heard this before in various areas of life. Well, it's none of my business what's going on over the world. And Paul's saying, actually, it's a lot of your business. Now, you're not to be the righteousness police going around doing all these things, but like right in a way that is, is out in the open, caught transgression. Someone comes to you, maybe it wasn't, or whatever it is, and they're like, this thing is eating my lunch. Like there is destruction written all over this path if I keep stumbling in this way, Paul says, it is your business. When this person is straying and wandering, now again, it's not self-conceited motivated business. The self-conceited man just heard me say, it is your business, and you're over here going, yes, right? Because the self-conceited man is like, just give me permission to go and prove how better I am than everyone else. That's why Paul is saying that is flesh walking What I'm saying is it is the business of everyone else when you're walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, then what's going to come out of you towards others is a Spirit-led loving that's going to seek that restoration, not grind that person in the dirt to make you look better. See, for some reason, it can be easy for us to adopt the pernicious attitude of Cain who said of his murdered brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? Do you remember that whole deal? Genesis chapter 4. Here's Abel honoring God, walking in a way that's pleasing. He finds the right reward for his, for his obedience. Cain is over here, not walking in a way that's honoring, pleasing to God. He finds the right reward for his disobedience. Cain doesn't like it. Cain murders his brother. Talk about self-conceit. You so don't like, that's envy. Envy led to anger. Hatred led to murder. The Bible says Abel's blood's crying out from the ground. The Lord God comes, I would argue, in a moment of seeking, like, hey, like, here's your opportunity to repent and confess, Cain. Hey, where's your brother at? Am I my brother's keeper? It's pernicious, man. That's satanic. That's damnable. The attitude that looks to the left, looks to the right, and see brothers and sisters caught in transgression is like, I'm not my brother's keeper. That's Cain. That's not, that's not Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Paul would say, in answer to this question, yes, you are. As a Christ-bought recipient of grace who walks in spirit-led power, life in the spirit looks like you actively being in the life of fellow believers. It looks like you actively being involved in community and discipleship. Also, you can actively seek the spiritual welfare of those who are in the community of faith. Again, I just circle back around with it. And just, just think about what Paul is saying. This week, you can so walk in the power of the Spirit... You can, in a way, I would say, prove that you're being led by the Spirit, and the proof that you are being led and empowered by the Spirit is not because some crazy, miraculous signs and wonders are being displayed in your life. 
You can sort of prove that you're walking by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and the proof would be this. You show up at community group this coming week. You make time in your schedule this coming week to have a coffee with somebody. When that person comes to you and says, I am caught in this transgression, or you see them caught in this transgression, you clear your schedule so that you can posture yourselves in such a way so that you can walk in the Holy Spirit. If you think about it in this way, and if my illustration is correct, I would argue it is, that you can actually quench the Spirit by so filling your schedule full of stuff that you have no possible way whatsoever to restore someone gently who's caught in transgression because you don't know people and people don't know you. Spirit-led living looks like community life. And it's posturing and ordering our calendar and our days to be in the place where we can walk in such a way where it's like this. Listen, you cannot... I would argue, do verse 1 well in a way that is obedient and pleasing to God by an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It's posturing yourself in such a way to where it's clearing out your schedule so that on Wednesday night, Thursday night, if you can't do nights, saying, man, I've got some hours in the morning, finding those who can just grab a coffee, grab a lunch, but doing something, fighting in such a way to where spirit-led walking Keeping in step with the Spirit looks like you saying, I am going to walk so that I can find that happy place in our lives where we are being able, posturing ourselves to restore gently anyone who's caught in any transgression. That requires them knowing me, me knowing them. That challenged me this past week because so often we would describe life and the power of the Holy Spirit not in that way. Yeah? My guess, go back to my opening illustration. If we handed out a little survey and say, describe what is power in the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit powered living look like? I doubt anyone would have written down, show up a community group on Thursday night. I just don't think it would have happened. I think that's what Paul is, what Paul is arguing is along those lines, okay? So, life in the Spirit looks like gentle restoration. Lastly, and more quickly, life in the Spirit looks like burden-bearing. Just real quick, this has, in a sense, nothing to do with uh, the sermon. I'm sorry that it's like a thousand degrees in here. I have no clue why the AC is not working right now, but I am sweating up here, man, okay? I, I just apologize for that. I have no clue why this space has a utter inability to remain cool. It's atrocious. I'm owning the atrocity, and I'm confessing it before you. That's why... Lord willing, these last couple verses will be quicker because some of you are like, oh, mercy, he just spent like a thousand hours on verse one, and we still got like two, three, four, and five to go. But (laughs) there you go, amen, over here. I love you, man. See, there you go. That's, I think, proper payback for me punking you out a little while ago as an illustration, man. So uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Verses two through five, what's the big idea? Burden bearing. Now, I would argue burden bearing does look like gentle restoration of those caught in any transgression. But I think there's that reality that just sort of broadens itself out a little bit, right? Burden bearing. Like there's areas of our life where uh, we have burdens because we were caught in some sin. Like this is the John Davis paraphrase of 1 Peter chapter 2 where, where uh, I think Peter says something along these lines. Like, hey, like if you find yourself with like some suffering and some difficulty in your life, 
I would call those burdens, but it's suffering and difficulty in life because you're a knucklehead and you've been making poor decisions. He's like, you shouldn't be surprised, man. Poor decisions and knucklehead actions will lead to difficulty and burdens. But there are areas of life where burdens land on us and it has nothing to do with being caught in sin. And so Paul is simply saying, listen, in our lives you have to realize that spirit-led serving one another in love looks like gentle restoration, but there's just times when people are simply weighed down by some burden and they need some help. Oftentimes, as I just said, believers have a variety of burdens that have nothing to do with sin. They're burdens that simply exist because we live in a fallen world that can bring all sorts of struggles unannounced at any given time. Physical illness, mental illness, financial crisis, family crisis, addiction, cancer, miscarriage, sudden loss of a loved one. None of those are because you were caught in any transgressions. because you live in a fallen world that's been wrecked and ruined by, by sin. You didn't put it on your day planner. Today I'm going to get caught up in, in cancer and just, just dive off the deep end or whatever. No, 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 no. Like you just go to the doctor's office and the blood report comes back. It's like, hey, we, we've got a problem. And all of a sudden, poof, this weight's on you. Got a burden on you. And Paul is saying any one of these could land in your lap at any given time. And Paul assumes that when they do, the command of burden bearing will be taken up by the body of Christ. And we thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? As one brother put it, the law of Christ is to love one another as he loves us. The law of Christ I would argue, is equivalent to the law of love back there in chapter 5, verse 14, so that when believers carry the burden of others, they behave as Christ did and fulfill his law. After all, think of how Christ ultimately exemplified the law of love. He bore our burden of sin to the cross. In love, he suffered and died in our place. In the words of the old hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood... As sinners justified by grace through faith in Christ, we know what it is for our ultimate burden to be borne by another. His name is Jesus. And therefore, we can now bear one another's burdens as those who have power to fulfill this command through the Spirit's ministry in our lives. Now, when you look at verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul is just again circling back around and saying, here we go again. Notice that pride can even hinder burden-bearing and brotherly love. Because if you think you're actually something, what you're saying to yourself is this. I'm too good to bear that person's burdens. After all, I'm something. They're nothing. They're not worthy of me bearing their burden. But he's like, no, you're not something. You're nothing. Don't be foolish. You're deceived. But, verse 4, he says, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And you're like, okay, I'm very confused now. Right? Over here, don't be conceited. Don't boast in yourself, verse 4. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. And you're like, I think Paul just like, had a complete lapse of judgment within like a two-sentence like, you know, time frame there. It's like, no, 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 no. Paul, Paul's not confused. Verse 3 and 4, like they're not in contradiction to each other. 
In verse 4, he just now says that we do have reason to boast, boast ourselves. This isn't contradiction. Paul's just simply telling us not to compare ourselves to our neighbor. Yes, fight pride, especially the kind of pride that wants to co-opt the Spirit's work in others in a prideful way. Because far too often we're tempted to take credit for God's work in others. But the reality is that we will only be able to bear our own load before God on that final day of judgment. So our boasting should not be in the work God has done in others, but in the work God has done in us. So what he's saying is this. Listen, the temptation and burden-bearing is to think that you're something. You're going to be, the temptation can be self-conceited. Because you're a self-conceited person, you think everyone's nothing when you're something. Because they're nothing, you won't serve them. But he's like, another temptation might be this, to look around as you're bearing others' burdens. You might begin to think of yourself as something because, look, I'm bearing their burden and it's actually being lifted a little bit. And we begin to think how great we are because God is using us in a great way. And then what we begin to do is boast in our neighbor by just saying, like, look, God has used me in a great way. And then we sort of co-opt the work and the power of the Spirit. Like, that person's burden isn't being born because you're so great. It's because God the Spirit is so great and he's using you. But in pride, what we can do is sort of co-opt what the Spirit does and say, look at me. We start to wave the banner. He says, no, 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 no. You need to fight that temptation because when it comes down to that last day and you stand before God, it's going to come down to you and the work God has done, done in you. You're not going to stand before God and God say, man, look at all that stuff you did to the neighbor you're going to stand before him, and it's going to be you standing before him. So what you have is this dual reality, that spirit-led living, spirit-led walking, looks like, yes, community, but then there's also just that individual reality as well. This is what it means to walk in the spirit, says Paul. Spirit-led living looks like burden-bearing restoration among the community of believers that flows from a Christ-bought freedom that has been received by grace. Let me paint a picture here for you, and then we're done. Any fans? Lord of the Rings? All right, that was a lot less hands than I was assuming would be, be erased. Emily Barnett, you need to, you need to, you need to get on this, Emily. Um, we, we, you've got some work to do here. Um, seen the movies, maybe, at least? Okay, all right, all right. Peter Jackson directed them, Return of the King. Think about the end of the Return of the King. Familiar scene that you'll, you'll have etched in, in your mind if you've seen those movies, right? Frodo is close to completing the work. The one ring that ruled them all, tossing them into the fires of Mount Doom. Um, but as he's making his way up into Mount Doom, my wife doesn't like this because it takes like 15 minutes of the movie just to show how agonizing the weight and the burden of bearing that load is. And Frodo, he's just like, he's stumbling, he's falling over the place, man. He's like, I can't do it, you know. He's too weary, he's too worn, he can't make it up the mountain. He's so stinking close. What happens? Good old Sam, he shows up with tears, passion, compassion for his friend and says, Come, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Scoops him up. Begins to carry carrying him up into Mount Doom and proceeds to help him 
so that Frodo can end this drama once and for all. I can't carry the burden for you, but I can carry you. My brother, his dad just passed unexpectedly. I can't carry that burden for him. That's, that's his burden. That was his daddy that died. But I can put my arm around him and help carry, carry him, pray for him, bring a meal for him, mow his yard for him, just show up and shut up and listen to him. In a sense, when you think about it, old, old Tolkien knew what he was doing. This is the perfect picture, I think, of what Paul has been driving at in these verses. Like good old Samwise Gamgee, spirit-filled believers help others carry the burdens that crush them. And so the question is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, whose burdens are you helping to bear? By the power of the Holy Spirit, whose burdens are you helping to bear? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the practicality of your word. Man, I'm so glad for the concrete particulars of your word. I'm so thankful that you love us enough to lead us by the hand and just show us what these things practically look like in our lives. Holy Spirit, turn our hearts to our Savior. Father, some of us are here, and we've just got burdens. Yes, we need to cast our burdens on the Lord. He cares for us in these things. But man, my prayer is that we will walk in the Spirit and invite someone in to help us bear that burden. Lord Jesus, there are some of us here carrying the burden of sin. Because we think uh, for a multitude of reasons that is maybe not that big. Maybe it's non-existent. Maybe it's just sort of something that will go away after a while. This sort of burden I'm feeling, this load on my back, the weight, the guilt of sin. But Father, we weren't meant to carry that burden, neither. That's why I'm so thankful that you bore that burden to Calvary. You suffered and died in our place. You rose from the dead, proving that you can be the burden bearer, the burden extinguisher, the burden killer, and that we can have life in you. Help us, Lord Jesus, respond now in song in the Lord's Supper. It's in your name I pray. Amen.